The Brutally Speaking podcast is proudly sponsored by Starving Artist Brewing. Starving Artist Brewing may be a small speck on Michigan's beer map, but they say big things come in small packages. A brewery who really puts their money where their mouth is, supporting underground artists far and wide. Making delicious beers with the simple belief that you should judge beer, not people. Brutally Speaking Podcast is proudly sponsored by Rockabilia.com. For over 30 years, Rockabilia has been the go-to destination for all things band merch. With over 500,000 items in their online store and collaborations with today's hottest bands, you're sure to find something you love. Use our code BREW10 at checkout and take 10% off your total order. So go pick up your favorite new piece of merch now over at rockabilia.com. Now, on to the show. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Brutally Speaking Podcast. I am your host, John, and this episode's guest is A.O. Levy. You might know him from the uh, Nail the Mix, uh, URM Academy, uh, producer, guitarist of Death, and a few other bands. And, uh, you know, regardless of how you know him, uh, this was an interesting one uh, to get the email for because this was initially for the How It's Done project with uh, Jens, uh, producer Jens I'm probably going to butcher the last name, but uh, Borgren and uh, Ishan from uh, Emperor. And it kind of just is an in-depth course, a really in-depth course, um, many, many, many hours long in-depth course on basically how to track uh, and record metal uh, and death metal and so forth. And it's one of those that if you've listened to the show uh, before, you know that I love having more behind the scenes people on the podcast and just kind of getting to know more about that world, especially from a production standpoint, because I feel like in today's world where, you know, there are so many, you know, campers and profilers and plugins and, you know, people have home studios and, and can actually make good sounding records, not in a very expensive environment uh, anymore. I, I think it's important to kind of have these people on. And even something that Aeol and I were talking about was that, this kind of gets rid of the gatekeepy aspect of, of metal and hard rock and so forth and really kind of makes it more for those who want to learn and want to be good at their craft and hone it. And why wouldn't you want to have someone on like that? And more importantly, why wouldn't someone want to be involved in kind of helping maybe usher in the next phase or person that's going to push the genre forward? I mean, I know I talk about Josh Schroeder quite a bit, and, and honestly, I just really need to get the motherfucker back on. Um, we talk about it all the time, and then we bullshit about wrestling and other things that don't matter. Um, but it is one of those things, like, I remember Josh starting his career uh, in producing. Like, he was already kind of doing it, but I remember that he started and kind of was working with, you know, I don't want to say lesser-known bands, but, you know, working with smaller local bands and working on his own stuff. And I remember, you know, the first, I think bigger record he got to do was battle cross. And it's a thing where like you look at Josh's career now 
and you know he's known for pushing the genre of heavy music you know with Lorna Shore and you know what they have accomplished and some of the other records that he's been doing I mean even expanding into with Butcher Babies and things like that on a more mainstream quote-unquote level but it's a thing to me where the genres of metal and hard rock and all that are have always been expanding in different directions and there's so many subgenres and stuff like that and I feel like those that want to learn and want to be in this industry in some capacity will find their way. And instead, I think of other people that try to, you know, gatekeep it and, oh, these are the things you have to do in order to to, to earn this knowledge or be even allowed to be a part of it. I think it's bullshit. And I see it in so many other things. It's not just music. It's not just hard rock and metal and all that. It's I see it in the tattoo industry. I see it in so many other, like the bar industry, I see it in so many fucking industries where I feel like people forget that they had to start somewhere too. And all anyone wanted was just to be given an opportunity to learn from people that they looked up to that, you know, had the thing, the career, whatever, that they were after. And I feel like so many people are are just shitty in that regard and and just want to be like, it's our little club. And to see what they're doing over with Nail the Mix and so forth. I think it's great, and I'm really interested to see who these next producers are going to be that are bringing forth the wild fucking bands and and these songs and helping push the genre uh, wherever it's going to go. And who took the time now to learn from the masters who are allowing access to them through these programs and just really dedicating themselves to it because I think that's that's ultimately with all the people that are on Nail the Mix and all the different artists and so forth that have come on it is one of those things where I feel like that's that's the beauty of where the era we live in now where technology has afforded people to kind of level the playing field and and if you are interested and want to put in the time and the effort there are tools and resources that you can utilize to start your own thing and, and go down the path yourself and to me, it's it's just an exciting time to to be alive, I guess, and, and see what's going to come of it. You know, being a big sports person, I think that's the crazy thing. Uh, you know, I'm going to use basketball, for example, because the, the NBA Finals just finished up and the season's done. But, you know, I'm essentially almost on my my fourth generation of players. And I've only been, <laughs> I've only been watching the NBA for about 25 years or so. But to see now this new era of players who were inspired by some of like the Kevin Garnett's and some of the people who were coming out of high school and changing the game right out the gate, the Kobe Bryant's and so forth. And now seeing some of these other players who are, you know, starting to put a name, like you're having players come into the league who are like, Oh, Dame Lillard is one of my guys. And it's like, Dame's not been around that long to me, but to see how people are coming in that are, you know, 1920 and they're inspired by people who are almost at the tail end of their career. And I remember those guys coming into the league, being inspired by other people who had been in the league for 10, 15 years before that. It's just an interesting progression when you can kind of see who inspires who and how it begets new talent. And to me, something like nail the mix and, and what they're doing, especially with this, you know, how it's done with, with Jens and Ishan that, I just want to see what it inspires down the road. How will it make people think of something differently? How will it give people the tools necessary to bring out things that they will put their own stamp on, on the scene and on music? 
And when you kind of start thinking about things like that, it's it's hard to want to gatekeep that. It's I to me anyway, I feel like it would just be so hard to want to do that. I would want more people to have access to these things because ultimately all it's going to end up do to use a Jostaism is it's going to the high tide raises all ships. So how would you not want that for a scene, for a genre of music that you apparently care so much about? And to me, that's that's always been kind of the biggest thing I hated about being a, a super fan of a lot of different things is I feel like the other super fans are the things that ruin it for the people trying to get into it. And speaking of trying to get into it, let's get into my conversation with Ale, and I will talk to you on the other side of it. Always trying to find something better. Yeah, no. I uh, I just just hit record just as a heads up. I don't know if you can see that on your side or if you can even see me. Yes, um, yes, I can. Okay. Is there anything I should know? No. Okay. No. Cool. No. You can swear. That's the only thing you should know, I guess. Because some people are like, "Yeah, really." Wait, can I swear? And I'm like, "Yeah, you can say whatever you want, dude." Cool. It's a podcast. Um, but no, like, I mean, that was it's it's kind of funny because even. What I love having podcasters come on, like when I had a uh, to or uh, Matt from Emory who does like their bad Christian podcast, he and I started talking about just the podcasting platform and different technology and how we have navigated, you know, them being in it. I think over a decade at this point, I'm 400 ups and seven years in, and it's just interesting to how everything changes and, and the ever adapting landscape of podcasting, and it still feels new to a degree. Uh, it still feels like it's kind of in its infancy stages right now, but I, I feel like for those of us that have been doing it or have been at least peripherally involved, even as listeners, it, it, we know that the medium has been around for so long and it's interesting to see where it's come. It almost at times feels like a, a, a sort of subgenre of music at this point. Yeah, it's it's interesting having done it, you know, what is it now, I think? maybe nine years. Um, I remember when podcasting was this thing that people made fun of you for doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how it's changed. It went from something that people make fun of you for, like the, what's that, that lame thing you do of podcasting. Yeah. You're so fucking lame uh, into uh, <laughs> everyone wanted a podcast for a second there. I still feel like there's a little bit of that. And I feel like it's funny because when when watching some of the videos that you know I was given by Tim to kind of see a little bit of more of the process of what you know this project and that you guys are all involved in was, it's kind of funny because as I was watching, I go, you know, there would have been a point where when watching people do this, that it is something like I feel like I've watched so many of my friends do it, where it's like you know they're just sitting there and like writing, you know, writing. And recording on their home studios now. And it didn't feel any different. Even watching uh Ishan do his like guitar takes, and it's just like, that was good. Let's try that one again. I kind of like this like little like percussive thing you're doing. Maybe we'll keep keep that section. Let's go to this, you know, try it one more time. And you know, you can kind of feel the differences and nuances that are happening between each take, and collectively you kind of 
copy and paste it together like a, a full section of it or a run through. But it, it's interesting to just kind of see like the breakdown of like, okay, you're going to put this into the doll. You're going to do this. This is how you start doing all the miking techniques and so forth. And it's so interesting to see it because I feel like there's not much difference at times now. Like the, the separation between the, the home person doing it versus a professional. I feel like the, the differences aren't really as much anymore. It's not such a huge divide. And I feel like home audio and home recording and all that kind of stuff has really made it to where you can have some really good stuff being made in people's houses at this point. Absolutely. So, um, so the previews that you saw, uh, were basically one thirtieth of the, um, So, um, which was still like three hours long. <laughs> yeah, I know that's it's insane. The and, but the thing about that is that the differences, or I'm getting at with that, is the differences between what uh, someone like Bogren and Ishan are doing versus a typical home studio outside of the process is the attention to detail is really really the big difference and that's in my opinion the the biggest value i guess or the biggest reason that we make these how it's done courses really the whole the whole thing the whole reason behind urm is to show how it is that the people who make these great records actually do it in real life and uh sometimes we get this critique from people who don't make records who want to make records that uh we're holding some information back or you know or like where is the the actual the actual info you're uh, we're being guarded and actually that's the thing we're not we're actually showing you what goes into it and what's both uh i guess inspiring and depressing about it is that (laughs) there is no secret, no magic there. No one's doing any like hidden trickery or anything. They're just doing work and they're just really good at it. And they're paying attention to all the right details and not worrying about stuff that doesn't matter. And that's it. But everyone has the same tools. And so you might watch this course or any of our courses and say to yourself that, well, I don't have a studio like Bogren's studio. I just have this home rig. And I would I would counter that by saying, well, what about people like Buster Odeholm or one of my partners, Joey Sturgis, who did it all in a home studio? The point is not the studio itself. The point is the attention to detail and what the people inside of the studio are doing and how good they are at what they do. I mean, Ishan is one of the most accomplished musicians in extreme metal period. Uh, I, I consider him to be like the black metal equivalent of uh, someone like Mike Ackerfeld, like, you know, Opeth quality stuff to me that, you know, Opeth is like the gold standard for uh, progressive extreme metal. And I think that like what Ishan does is like the Norwegian variant of that gold standard and somebody who's that good or great let's just say someone who's that great uh they make it seem easy same with Jens makes it seem easy and 
it can lead someone to believe that, all right, they are just sitting there critiquing the parts, like actively muting the instrument, like redoing takes, editing it together. That's what I do. Uh, why, why is my stuff not as good as theirs? And it comes down to, it comes down to the attention to detail and the the skills involved in how much time they will put into it and so hopefully when someone watches that that's what they're picking up that it's like whoa i actually do have most of these tools if not all uh i have equivalent equivalent tools i could do this i just got to work a little harder and learn about what are the things that actually make a difference not worry about the things that don't there was a couple of things when watching the videos and so forth and just kind of, I mean, I, I don't say this in a negative way, but being overwhelmed by this, the sheer amount of shit that's going to be in this online course, basically, or this, uh, the courses basically. Yeah. And it was, it was interesting. Cause like when watching Jens and Ishan, you know, tracking guitars, like I said, there was such a familiarity to it of like watching and literally sitting there and doing the same thing with my friends who like had like a 24 channel, like mixing board and all this kind of stuff and using logic and, or early versions of pro tools and stuff like that. And it, it just took me back to it. And that was the thing that I, I latched onto right away is I was like, it's funny that how I feel like people are going to watch this and feel like, well, there's something they're doing or they have all this, this stuff that I don't have. And it's like, I watched it and I was just like, no, I mean, most everyone has these things now. Like it's, but it is the attention to detail. It is making sure that you're working with a purpose versus just kind of doing it, going through the motions. And it was funny because when I was watching it, I just couldn't help but think of, uh, local to here in Michigan, uh, Josh Roeder, who's done like Lorna Shore and a lot of oh, other yeah. bands. Love that guy. Same. Um, good friend. And it's funny because I feel like people, I think people go to Josh and expect there to be some magic to it. And it's like, he's using like, you know, his running joke that he hasn't paid for Reaper <laughs> <laughs> and that he, he does so many things that are quote unquote unconventional, but it's what works for the project. It's what works for the people. And it's, it's not a one size fits all thing. It's a, a tired and true process of putting in the work and wanting to make and do the, it just comes down to that. It's just doing the fucking work. And I feel like, I feel like that's the part that when people are possibly looking and watching, you know, the different courses that you have, or even this one that I feel like, I feel like people are just looking for the shortcut. Like, oh, there it is where it's like, all you got to do is just copy and paste and here's this plugin and and now everything will sound just like how I make it. And it's like, no, it's it's the attention to detail. It's it's the putting in the fucking work. And I just feel like no one wants to do that anymore. Well, I will challenge you on saying that nobody wants to do it because uh, we've seen URM students go from total novices to pro uh, like doing really good records now and really good work. So some people want to do it, but I do agree with you. I do agree with your sentiment that it is like this uh, part of the human condition to try to find shortcuts. Um, the thing is we are presenting you with the greatest shortcut ever, which is <laughs> showing you exactly the stuff you need to focus on rather than kind of like fumbling around in the dark forever. Uh, like 
you're still going to have to do the work and get good at it and learn how to make good decisions and intentional decisions. But at least with this information, it can help guide you towards what are the types of decisions that are relevant to this process. But that that is the intentionality thing that you brought up is a huge part of it. Uh, one of the problems that are, I see it a lot in the modern scenarios where there are presets, there are templates, which I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but it, the presets themselves and the templates aren't the problem. It's how they're used often. That's the problem, which is like, well, we've noticed on nail the mix, for instance, because in nail the mix every single month, there's a different song with a different mixer, a different set of multi-tracks and you'll, and they, they vary wildly. Like you'll have like Arcspire one month and then a day to remember something next month. And the stuff that works for Arcspire will not work for a day to remember. Like it, you can't just take what worked on, uh, in one scenario and just put it on, on a totally different scenario and think that it's gonna, it's gonna work the exact same way. It's not. And so the, the whole point of it is to learn how to um, understand what it is that you're hearing, understand what is deficient in what you're hearing and what it is you need to do to fix it or make it better or what it, what's not there in the vision or what is there in the vision that you need to bring out and how are you going to do it? The, those are the types of things that uh, mixers or producers, engineers need to be asking themselves every single time that, they do it and a point something out about Ishan and Yen sitting there tracking uh, the, the thing that I thought was really interesting from watching that, like right there in the room with them was the level of feedback that they were giving each other. It was really mm -hmm. high and there was no, like they weren't beating around the bush, but they're also being totally respectful uh, with each other. And if one of them didn't like an idea, they were not afraid to stand their ground, but they also weren't afraid to entertain other ideas that might be better than their own. And there's no, no ego about it. Just this dedication to coming out with the best sounding song possible. And I, I think that that, that focus, uh, I think is really, really crucial. I find that missing a lot on, I guess, amateur recordings or in situations where I've been around um, non-pros. Like, I feel like that's often what's not there is a professional style of collaboration where everybody is on the same page about, uh, we're just going to make this better. And I mean, that's kind of like also really a recipe for life, uh, mm -hmm. being able to collaborate with people and give them feedback. I mean, that's, I mean, if you look outside of uh, audio, that's one of the big reasons, for instance, that aviation got way safer is uh, pilots being able to call each other out, uh, not just go with what the captain is saying. If they're doing something messed up, uh, you're allowed to, you're allowed to speak up. Whereas prior, prior, you weren't able to cause many more accidents and that type of thinking. Um, I've seen it in studios a lot where it's like, 
well, this guy feels really strongly about this part, or this guy is going to pitch a fit if I say something, or like, I don't want to offend them, or we worked really hard on this part, like, what, or whatever it is. And people will just either not say it, or they'll say it in the worst way possible. And if you notice right. with Jens and Isan, they're just, they're just going about it like it's this shared goal and this job and they uh and they're not letting anything they're not letting anything i guess slip the cracks basically yeah there was i mean even to that there's a couple of things that i i kind of took away and when i say this it it sounds it sounds bad when i say it like i i know out, outwardly it sounds kind of like very I guess I'll just say American a way of saying this, but it's like when watching it, it just reminds me of something that I, I constantly see when I have people of all from all over the world on this podcast is sometimes I feel like, and I guess it's, it, it feels like it's just an American thing where we'll, we'll kind of sugarcoat or pussyfoot around something because we don't want the awkward, like awkwardness of a, of a conversation and to have there be conflict or whatever. And I feel like something I have taken away from watching especially when watching that thing yesterday is I felt like I was like, there was no sense of ego. They both just kind of are very unapologetically to the point and understand that by doing such, the whole point is that they want what they're both working on their time being invested in to be the best that it absolutely can be. And when you kind of break it down like that, it's like, well, why would there be any sense of ego? Why would there be any sense of, I, I shouldn't be able to vocalize my opinion because at the end of the day, we're both putting our name on this and we have a, a reputation and we want it to be the best that it can. So by doing that, that's all that the end goal is going to be is just, we want it to be the best that it can be. So why wouldn't you be more direct and just, here's my opinion or here's what I think. What do you think? Um, but I tend to notice that more in non-Americans, uh, personally. Yeah. Uh, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> and you, have you seen a girl with the dragon tattoo? The, the, the movie? Uh, no, no, I haven't. Okay. Well, there's two versions. There's the David Fincher version and the original version, but it, sorry, spoilers. Uh, it's been out a long time. So yeah, you know, no I'm, not, I'm not actually sorry. Uh, <laughs> there is, there is a scene towards the end in where, which version? Uh, the American version, the okay. David Fincher version, okay. where um, Daniel Craig's character is, knows that this dude is the serial killer. He knows. And this dude is like part of high society or something, uh, lives in a really nice house. And he's walking past the house. And the guy invites him in, I think, like for a drink or something. But this is towards the end. And like, you know that he knows what he's that he shouldn't go in there, but he goes in there anyways. And da Daniel Craig's not James Bond in this movie. He like right. he can't fight. Like he's not he's not like some hero. He's just like a reporter, I believe. And uh, he goes in there anyways, and he gets himself chained up in the basement and strangled with a plastic bag. And the dude says that. Uh, something to the effect of um, people would rather put themselves in harm's way than risk offending somebody. And mm. that's how I knew that you'd come to the house when I called you over. And uh, I thought about that a lot that um, people will, people will 
not say the thing they need to say to their own detriment hmm. all the time. And uh, I mean, I think we all do it. I definitely do it and have uh, trained myself to not do it, but I still find myself sinking into that behavior. But, you know, it, it's really, really important to uh, try to wean yourself off of that tendency because if not, things will just, first of all, you might put yourself in some really uncomfortable situations you don't want to be in, number one. But number two, things will never be as good as you want them to be or hope they'll be if you're too scared to say the thing that needs to be said in order for the thing to get better. And right. the way that a lot of people will, I guess, get around that is they'll bottle it up to where it builds up, builds up, builds up, and then they'll say it in the worst way possible to where it does attack somebody's ego and it does cause a fight where if you just handled it the way that Jens and Ishan do, which is just all throughout, you know, the moment something's not right, you just address it right then and there and uh, maintain just this professional level of communication uh, from the get-go, it just makes things a whole lot easier than... Uh, beating around the bush and then eventually exploding on someone or not saying something at all. And then just ending up with something that's half-assed. Right. Yeah. I feel like, and it's funny cause like I was kind of going through your socials in the, in the last like 24 hours or so there was kind of even I'm something. Sorry. No, <laughs> no, you're good. It's, it's interesting because like there's a couple of like, it's funny because like I think you'll understand us from doing the podcast and obviously being so immersed in music from a, a different perspective than than the average person. But like doing this show for a while, like uh, something I've been talking a lot about recently is how it's only been maybe in the last year that I've kind of fallen back into being into music. This show kind of really robbed me of my fandom of listening to music because I I looked at it as a job and I was like. Okay, when I listen to a new record, it's like, all right, what what can I find in this in some capacity that is going to be completely different than what anyone else is going to talk about in the press junket cycle? And when you start doing that, it just makes listening to music not fun because you're not look, listening to it as a fan to have, to enjoy it. You're just looking for any little thing that you can talk about at length. Um I realized over the last few years, I've just everything I love about the music industry, I've ruined it on myself by doing different facets of it, whether it was being in a band, booking shows, writing about music, and now even doing this where I'm like, you know, it's something I love and it's so much a part of me, but I've also apparently chosen to just ruin every aspect of it for myself because of my curiosity and wanting to be involved in it. But it was interesting because you had posted there are two things that stuck out to me. You had posted about the nail, the mix on Nickelback. And I was like, yep. I was like, I can't wait to read these comments. Cause I guarantee I already know what they're going to fucking be. And most of them were, I bet you were wrong. No, almost everything was pretty much what I expected because oh, the, the, the anomaly, I, I ones, was wrong then. Okay. The anomaly ones were the people that were kind of shitting on. Why would you pick Nickelback? Why would this be interesting? It's generic. It's to the grid. It's whatever. Mm -hmm most of the comments were actually really interested to see what this is about. And most of what you wrote in your caption was exactly how I felt. I was like, they've always sounded really good, good mixes, you know, nothing fighting for space in the mix. Like 
just fucking sounds great. Sounds kind of like the Bob rock era of hard rock, heavy metal, quote unquote, that I grew up on. Like, it's funny because I have realized when people are like uh, a friend of mine, uh, Dewey from pure pleasure podcast, he always is like, you know, I can't believe you don't like, you know, death metal. You don't like punk rock. And I go, it's mainly cause I just don't like how it sounds like production wise. It just sounds like shit to me. Like almost like that's the badge of honor is how shitty can I make it sound? That's the best part. And it's like, I grew up in the eighties, dude. Like everything had a very pop sheen. Like one of my favorite producers of all time that got me into producing and noticing things from a production standpoint was Mutt Lang. And like the way that that dude could traverse genres even is phenomenal. Like Brian Adams waking up the neighbors still holds up because it sounds great from a production standpoint. That Shania Twain record that he did still sounds really fucking good. Like I don't think some people understand that like the era you grow up in and kind of the music that we listen to like pop music in the eighties was so wide reaching that everything had kind of a pop sheen to it. So it's like, I, of course I want my music to sound good um, from the production standpoint and just good songwriting. But it's funny to me to sit there and see people who I would assume at this point, given the tenure of what you've done, that it's like, why wouldn't you branch out into other subsets of, of the rock and metal genre? And why is anyone surprised? And that was the thing is I was I was surprised to see negative comments because I really expected people to be like, you know what? I'm really interested to see what are they doing? Because there's what I expect. And then I'm sure it's not what it is. So I can't wait to see this, this, you know, nail the mix. So I was, you know, like I said, that surprised me to see a handful of people still bitching and complaining that why would you even waste your time? And I was like, really? Like all this time, all the artists and all the people you've covered, you're still getting this. And I think it's just because there's the expectation that it's cool to hate on Nickelback and we still are our own worst enemies when it comes to gatekeeping shit. Well, uh, for so sorry, I assumed that you were going to expect it to be like all negative comments. No, and, okay, no. so okay, so you you understand that the per, that Nickelback sounds incredible. Um, yeah. So like, here's the here's the thing. Uh, a band like Nickelback, for what we do, whether or not I listen to black metal. Um, like what whatever my personal tastes are whatever my band sounds like whatever types of bands i've worked with when i used to produce like nickelback is basically uh like a tier below metallica in terms of size and so if anyone is wondering why we would have nickelback on nail the mix it's like why would you are you seriously asking <laughs> me that question like uh, like for real, like regardless of if you're a fan or not, um, are you really actually asking that question? Why, uh, an online recording school for rock and metal producers would have Nickelback on? That's just like, I don't really believe in stupid questions, <laughs> but that's a stupid question. And then, um, I'll also point out though, that the, the internet, like the, the, I guess the open side of the internet, like it, social media and stuff is very different than, um, the private URM yeah. community. So within the URM community, uh, the response was just like overwhelmingly positive. It was like, people were so beyond stoked. And that's because inside the community, it's all people who 
well, first of all, they're paying to be there, right? So they have, they are all into getting better at production. And so anyone who's been trying to get better at production, mixing in any sort of heavy music has come across Nickelback at some point, heard their stuff. And even if they don't like it, like even if their aesthetic is more towards the raw stuff, like it's undeniably incredible sounding. Yeah, I remember there was that dude who was like, "How dare you say that it's the gold standard or something?" <laughs> it's like, <laughs> are we really going to argue about this? Like, who, who who gives a shit what I said, anyways? Like, if you don't agree, like, cool. But um, it, as I think that uh, I'm not into the idea of branching out too far outside of heavy music for what we do. Um, like, you're Anytime we've done it, it hasn't gone well. And really, honestly, I'm not even that, I'm not very passionate about stuff outside of heavy music. Like I'm into soundtracks and I do like other things, but there isn't another genre besides maybe orchestral music that Mm. I have this level of knowledge of. But also this is the genre that I have like built my career off of. This is like where I have my entire network uh this is what pays my bills what's been my life for like two decades now um i don't have that level of knowledge of other genres of like who to talk to who would be relevant to get on like who would be the most engaging who's actually awesome who do i have to talk to in order to like secure this other thing that needs to happen in order for the bigger goal to take place i just don't I don't have that. And I feel like you would need somebody kind of like myself or my partners who is the equivalent in another genre to pull off what we've pulled off in another genre. And we have to be honest with ourselves. We're not interested in that. So like you need someone who's as passionate as we are about heavy music um, to do that. Like say it's like EDM or something. You need someone who lives for EDM and has made their lives all about EDM. And, um, and so, yeah, we're going to keep going for, I call it the heavy music umbrella. Like it doesn't matter if it's black metal. It doesn't matter if it's Nickelback. Um, if it's under the heavy music umbrella, we're going for it. Um, because we want to show how, how it's all made, uh, anything in heavy music, uh, we want to show how it's made, but do you remember how bad, the perception of Nickelback was just like four years ago. Like it's gotten a lot better. Like people have kind of mostly left them alone. Finally. Yeah. Mostly. It's, it's funny though. Cause like, cause I feel like I, at times I get a lot of, I've gotten a lot of weird feedback over the course of like doing this show and even doing uh, another show I had done uh, with a old co-host of mine. Um, where we would go through bands discographies and at the end of it, it would always be like, what's your album of the week? And it's like, you know, when you're spending a week listening to the entire like death discography or whatever, which, you know, I hadn't really ever done, wasn't kind of my thing. And I was like, yeah, you know, I was listening to, you know, we'll just say like Tupac or I was listening to, you know, something completely on the opposite side of it just to get it like a kind of a palate cleanser of sorts. And so people are just like, I don't even think he likes metal and i'm like i like metal but i also like other stuff and and that was kind of always the thing is it feels like at times like you some people are just so singularly focused on a genre or a thing mm-hmm. and it's like 
you can, but like at the same time, like something I love is, you know, talking to like, you know, like my 400th episode, which I just did, posted like uh, about two weeks ago as I'm when we're recording this was with Vinny from Naughty by Nature. And that's awesome. You know, we're talking about, you know, 30 years of their, their second record, 1993. But really what I wanted to talk to him about was branding in the music business and like how he's, how they have traversed it over the last 30 years. Cause they're still around the branding always stuck out to me from the, from the jump. Uh, and so much so that like, even when I wear my naughty by nature stuff, people are like, yo, that's so awesome. Where'd you get that? And it's like the internet, man, like the internet, you can get anything. Um, but it's, it's crazy. Cause like, there are a lot of people like, when we when I talk about things like that, they're just like, well, why? I don't know. Like just the behind the scenes stuff to me is so fascinating. And like talking about branding, talking about, you know, production, talking about all of these things is, is so intriguing. But even taking it a step further, I feel like to me, something I would find interesting in, in ways that I feel like you could branch out a little bit more would be to go to someone like a ghost main. And like, and I don't know if you've already done some well, of this stuff. Yes, that, that, but that's adjacent. So, right. Like I still consider that under the umbrella, but I mean, you could, I, to me, it's like, okay, if you're, if you're starting to venture into like ghost main, then it's like, what really is the difference between now getting into like something like a suicide boys or getting into something like, you know, like kind of pushing it just a little bit further because, you know, something that was really interesting to me was, I think it was on Netflix. They had a documentary uh, series on super producers uh, and hip hop and kind of going through the decades of, and the, the coasts, uh, you know, from like Teddy Riley and uh, Pharrell over in the East coast to Timbaland, uh, to like Jay Dilla in the Midwest and then Kanye and and kind of going from there. And it was just interesting to see the different eras and the sounds and how everyone kind of borrowed from one another. And like, there was a part in the doc where they were talking about Kanye being like, when I can get a live instrumentalist, a live guitar player, shit's going to change. Cause instead of having to find these samples, I can come up with the thing I hear in my head and tell someone to play something like it. And to me, I feel like, that gets more into live instrumentation. It gets into being a musician. It gets into some of these things where it's like, you may not think that it would carry over, but the amount of people I've had on the show where I will mention like, Oh, this part kind of reminds me of this. And it's way outside of the genre of what they're doing. And they're like, Oh yeah, hundred percent. That was something I was listening to, or that's an influence. And it's like, I feel like it would be interesting to see if, and maybe it's not you all that carry on the different subgenres, but maybe it's almost like a like a franchisee or like a a, a well, that, an extension well, kinda, of what you're doing. Well, that's kind of what I'm saying is yeah. you need to. So okay, so I guess there's a couple different things uh, I want to. I get I I hate the word unpack, but uh, <laughs> unpack. So okay, <laughs> having. I see having a passion for music overall and being fascinated by the types of things you were just talking about, which I totally am and love, uh, very different than a career path, right? So like the actual career side of it with um, everything that goes into just one nail the mix episode, like there's so much more to it than just the music. There's right. the, there is like, the level of relationships that we have and knowing exactly who like who's on what label and who their a and r person is and do i know that yes i know that person from 15 years ago when they did pr for this 
company and like knowing how the entire, I guess, the web of heavy music works, that's what allows, that's what like facilitates this now the mix thing working the way it does. And um, it, we don't have, or I don't have that kind of knowledge of how other genres work. And so I feel like at best what it would be is I could land some stuff here and there, which is fine, but uh, the, it's not the same as like knowing, like knowing the scene so well that like being able to like get behind certain artists that I know are going to do well. Like for instance, like Arcspire, uh, we got behind them about two years before they really started to blow up. And mm. it's because, uh, and it's because of the right people that I know were the ones who turned me on to it. And then I know the style so well that is super clear from hearing them. This is something that expands on something that the entire uh, audience has wanted to happen. They've wanted Necrophages to come out with another record, but they haven't. And so the audience is like, the audience is really, really hungry for it, much in the way that uh, in the 90s, uh, I guess the same type of people who really wish that the Rolling Stones were a young band went to Guns N' Roses or something like the same people who wish that necrophagist would have kept on making records uh, and have been waiting 20 years. Well, they got it in the form of Arcspire, just as good as necrophagist. And to be able to like understand the history of the genre on a pretty deep level, and then also know the people in it uh, to like the decision makers and like having a current feel for all of it plus a historical feel like that's it's asking a lot in other genres that's not to say that they're that like i don't like it i think it's real close-minded and self-limiting to have a singular thing a singular genre that you spend your whole life listening to or exploring but still i think that's very different than an actual dedicated career path so uh i'm not like against expanding into other genres but like i said i think you would need somebody who has like built up what i've built up over 20 years in that genre uh who has that expertise and who has that level of network because the thing with nail the mix man it's been around since 2015 bringing on a whole new mixer and artist every single month without any without ever being late without ever having a lag like the one or two times that we've had one fall through like the day of launch we've like been able to replace them immediately like how would i do that in hip-hop like i don't know anybody hmm. and so the the practical reality of making this thing work as a business um you know that that's one thing now like watching documentaries and getting into the love of music and uh you know knowing about like how sick of a fucking musician producer dr dre is and his use of real instruments i think that that's that's important just for being a well-rounded music lover and it makes you a better musician it makes you a better producer and you really should uh expand your mind in my opinion um like you can really hear in people's music when 
all they do is listen to one thing and then mm. try to create music that is that one thing like it it's pretty boring and formulaic i think that the all the great ideas come from bringing in outside influences and combining them with your influences so i both i agree with you um but it's also one of those things where uh where the actual reality of doing that like as consistently as we've done it um is a different thing it's interesting because like in my head and i know from a, a an actual like boots on the ground doing it it's totally different but it's funny because like one of the first things i was thinking of is it's like is it that tough because i feel like so much of like just even my time doing different stuff in the in the music industry it's like someone begets somebody else knows somebody else and it's just a connection of connections and it's like the first one of the first things i was thinking of is like nuno betancourt being in rihanna like granted he may not be i don't know if he actually writes any of the stuff that she does or has been on any of her records but it's like the fact that we have you know a virtuoso dude who's been tied to to rock and hard rock from the 80s and extreme there's a connection to the world over there and it's like i feel like there's enough of those examples where maybe it wouldn't it wouldn't seem like it would be as hard as maybe as it really would be well the thing is that like yes that's true and uh definitely the the degrees of separation thing is like at this point i could probably get to almost anybody through one or two degrees of separation. I'm aware of that. But the thing is the, I guess the, the knowledge and the intuition of uh, that guide making the right decisions mm -hmm. and knowing who to contact for what, like it, the back to intentionality that like you, I really do think that you kind of need to understand the lay of the land. Um, if you want to dominate, in a business. Like if you want to have a business that is going to like keep doing well year after year after year, decade after decade, you can't rely on other people's expertise to, uh, to guide your decision-making. You can consult with them. You can get favors every once in a while, but at the end of the day, like you got to chart your course and you have to like analyze the landscape for yourself. And so that's not to say that you can't go into uncharted territory and be successful, but I do think that it's important to understand your own landscape. And so like say country music, for instance, uh, I wouldn't even know. I mean, I guess I wouldn't know where to begin, but do I care about country music enough to learn enough about it to be able to make the same types of decisions? Probably not. And uh, hmm. I think it's important to be honest with yourself, uh, honest with yourself about your strengths and what the reality on the ground is. But again, like if I was to find somebody like me or like my partners in who has that type of history and knowledge of another genre and like the skill set put together, uh, I would be very into, uh, giving that a shot in some way, shape or form. I kind of want to backtrack for a minute. Cause there was something else that you had said that I think is kind of interesting and, and important. And I kind of want to dig a little bit deeper and, and kind of pick your brain on something about it. But you were talking about with Archspire, you know, that you guys kind of were turned onto them ahead of, you know, kind of them 
blowing up. So in a sense, it's almost like you now through even just from a produce, like showcasing more of a production side of things that you're almost becoming tastemakers of sorts too, where you're, you're turning people on to new music. Uh, you're curating for lack of a better term. How much attention do you take to that? Uh, when you're picking different bands and so forth, like, do you try to every so often showcase a, a, a lesser known band to kind of maybe put them in front of other people? Yes, absolutely. Um, Arc Spire is a perfect example. Um, Spirit Box was another. Um, we we had Holy Roller on right when it came out. Um, it it was like it was super obvious from hearing from the first time I heard Holy Roller that that shit was going to blow up. Um, and then they're just the coolest people and super easy to work with. And once you work with them, you realize that uh, there's lots of reasons for why they got big as fast as they did. But, uh, but yeah, like absolutely. Um, when I hear something that I just, and it is pure intuition really at kind of, it is kind of like, not exactly like a label, but there is, I guess, a parallel to an A&R person who hears a band and is like, holy shit, everybody needs to hear this band. And I definitely get that feeling about certain bands and uh, will uh, will definitely try to get them on Nail the Mix, even if I know that that Nail the Mix is not going to be like some big month, like periphery or nickelback or something like that um it like uh, absolutely and sometimes i'm right sometimes i'm wrong but i do th and i never i don't think that we are like at all like the reason for why a band blows up or anything like that but we definitely don't hurt and um and you know we're, we do what we can i think that you hear about this all the time like, people have this idea that rock or metal are going to die because there isn't a Metallica to come up and take Metallica's place. And, uh, you know, maybe there is not a Metallica to come up and take Metallica's place, but there are a hell of a lot of great bands out there, maybe more, more than ever. And, uh, if the, if the people who have the ability to get bands in front of people don't do that, that is what's going to hurt, uh, it's not that there isn't another Metallica. It's that tastemakers, gatekeepers, and uh, I guess people with any influence at all, like if they stop getting behind bands and championing them, then that will be what uh, what kills it. It's not going to be that there isn't some classic rock band to take a classic rock band's place. I think that's kind of been the interest, interesting thing about, I guess, A, you know, you're mentioning Metallica, like, you know, Josta always is quick to talk about the cosign and how uh, more bands need to, to do that uh, and cosign to bring out up and coming bands. Yeah. And I feel like what Metallica has done, you know, with their, their current tour, their world tour they're doing, where they're essentially bringing, was it four, four or five bands total between the two days between Pantera and, I don't remember who the other band is on that. Ice day. Nine Kills. Okay, and then yeah, I thought it was. I thought Ice Nine was on the day not with Pantera. Um, oh well, I I don't know, but Ice Nine is doing. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Patrick's lot. yeah, Patrick's a friend of mine. So like when he ended up, we have talked about that a couple of times on the podcast. Like, what was it like playing your home stadium <laughs> opening for Metallica? Um, 
but it, it's it's interesting because I feel like Metallica has always done that. Like I can even go back to like there's still a band I haven't seen because for a while they used to do and notoriously this one tour came through here in town and then announced it. It sold out super quick and I was going to buy tickets just to see him. But I was like, I don't really want to pay that much money just to see Metallica. And it ended up being that they brought out Lamb of God and Gojira was were the openers. And it was one of the first times like Gojira had done like a big like us tour and i was like and i think the way of all flesh had just come out and i was like fuck if i would have known that i definitely would have bought tickets because i wanted to see gojira and i feel like they've always done a good job of bringing out like those bands who are like doing really well and have a name but like it takes them to that next level and you know they're doing it with ice nine at this point like you know having seen them almost in, like when they were the first second of four on Entreyu tour a couple years ago and like having that moment where you see it and you're like, oh shit, something's happening literally in the room. Like the, the, you know, everyone knows all the lyrics to the brand new songs that just came out merch lines, 20, 30 deep, the entirety of the show. Like it was a moment where you're like, something's about to happen with this band and, and it has. Um, but it's still just crazy to me to see that Metallica seemingly are one of the few that will just take out bands regardless, kind of if they fit genre wise, and I just don't see it as much. Um, a lot of times I think you do see more of the let's kind of play it safe and take out bands that are pretty comparable. Um, so I'm interested to see if any other of the older, more legacy bands will kind of start doing more of like what Metallica is doing, because it seems like I mean, Metallica can sell out the arenas and sheds and all that kind of stuff and, you know, have no problem with it. But I feel like when you see 10,000 people showing up for the openers and stuff, it's like, all right, like the openers maybe are, are drawing some people to you and you know, it's going to start getting them some more attention and it's going to create those ne that next round of, you know, bands that can come behind Metallica. I mean, no one, I don't think anyone's ever going to reach the level of success that Metallica has uh, in the hard rock metal genre. No, maybe for not. as long, for as long, especially. No, maybe not, but um, there's definitely going to be more bands who have sick careers. Um, yeah. Like architects uh, was the other one they just took out. I just remember that. Yeah, Architects, and I know Slipknot has been really good about doing that. Uh, I think back to when Tool took Meshuggah out. Like, I, I do think that the history of rock and metal is in large part built off of bigger bands getting behind smaller bands. And uh, like right now, I know that Lorna Shore is opening for Bring Me the Horizon, I believe in Europe. Um, mm -hmm. Like, it still happens uh, and it, I hope it keeps on happening because yeah, you're right. That is uh, that, that cosine is a big part of what's needed. I do think that all those shows with Metallica that Gojira did whenever, I think it was like for a year or two, Lamb of God as well. Like Lamb of God were already, already had their own, their own momentum at that point. But Gojira, like, I really think that uh, Metallica, Metallica did a huge thing for them by taking them out for that long that it yeah. was, it was like a couple of years, I believe. Yeah. I feel like it. Cause then I feel like the next tour really that I remember Gojira doing of that was big. Cause there was the tour they're supposed to do with Lamb of God where Randy ended up having to go back overseas to deal with the uh, legal issues he was uh, dealing with. And I remember uh, being pretty excited cause that was really one of the l 
only other time since that Metallica tour where Gojira did like B markets because I'm in a B market. Um, so it was like, oh shit, they're coming to my my little town and they're finally playing. And it's been since that Metallica tour since they've been through. Um, and then that tour because we were the first date, and then obviously Randy and the tour got canceled, and then the tour kind of split off. And I was trying to book Gojira at that point, and I even had a venue that was like, yeah, whatever the guarantee is, we'll we'll probably pay half of it for you with you because uh, we know it's going to do well. And they opted to, to just essentially do all a markets uh, to salvage the tour while they were over here, which was a bummer. But well, well, I think uh, actually, like that whole idea um, is a part of what uh you know urm is built on um like in my opinion every other genre of music for instance you can go to an actual university and study it really almost any genre of art too uh you can go and actually get a degree in it um and for a long time with production you could go and you could learn almost anything except for metal. Um, hmm. And the, you know, I, I think metal production is the most difficult. It's the most difficult genre because it's pure noise. It's basically nothing, nothing works. Like it's not supposed to work. It's really, really, really difficult to get it to sound good. Um, and uh, it was basically overlooked. And so you had this, uh, massive i guess genre of music with like this lineage of incredible artists incredible producers where the things that they were doing were not getting documented and not getting passed on to the next generation and uh like i wanted to put an end to that and then also help new the new generation of producers uh get out there as well as also help get behind some up and coming bands. But uh, I do think that, you know, it's different than a band giving a cosign, but it's the same idea that it is hmm. up to people in the scene to, uh, to champion other people in the scene who are doing something uh, worth championing and then actually getting behind it. And the thing is, that you hear a lot of talk about like support your local scene and uh, stuff like that, which honestly I kind of disagree with because it's too generalized and it's too random. And to me, that just kind of sounds more like just support stuff. Like it doesn't, it doesn't like, I don't agree with that. You should support stuff that's worth supporting and like hmm. really, really get behind it because that's the stuff that's going to perpetuate the genre moving forward. Uh, so like, if you really, really believe in a band, really, really believe in a producer, uh, you know, it's on the more of a platform you have too, the more it's on you to, to get it out there. Uh, and otherwise, how does it get out there? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I remember having a conversation with my dad a while ago, uh, and he was asking me, "What am?" Can't remember exactly how he said it, but something to the effect of like, "Have you ever thought about your platform and like what you want to put out there?" And I was like, "What are you talking about?" He's like, "You have people who listen to the show. It goes out, you know, worldwide. Like you see that. Like, do you ever think about what you want it to be?" And I was like, no, because it's 
it was weird because it really was the turning point for me to realize that I guess even though I don't feel like anyone listens to the show for me, it's a hundred percent because of whoever the guest is that there's still some sort of level of accountability that you have to take when you're doing something that it's like, it's still a platform of yours and you still have to like be mindful of what you're putting out there. And I know that's like a, a little bit more of a serious tone of like what we're discussing, but it is still interesting to think that when we do something that it is a platform and that there are going to be people who are looking at it and that essentially we, I guess, have to kind of be mindful of what we're putting out there or even that like, you know, sometimes I try to be a little bit more mindful of having different types of people on. Like when I got the email about, you know, this project, I was like, I love having behind the scenes people on the podcast. Like, it's more infinitely more interesting to me because it's what kind of makes everything go like producers. If you don't have producers, if you don't have the A&R people, you don't have text, you don't have like all these people who are kind of thankless in from a main person's perspective. It's like, it's honestly what makes most of this happen. Um, I mean, going to live shows, like I find the teching side of things and the front of house stuff infinitely more fascinating than like watching most of the show anymore. Because I'm like, how did like this is what makes everything that I'm watching happen? It's what makes the show a show. It's what I, I can't say it any other way than just it, it's what how it makes the thing happen. And to me, I find it so fascinating because it's just intriguing. And it's it's a, there's so many unknowns and there's so many different ways you could do it. And honestly, it kind of is a thing, too, where I, I feel like it's someone may listen to this and be like, I can't play guitar or an instrument to save my fucking life, but I love music. And maybe hearing someone talking about, you know, being a lighting director or a million other things you can do in this industry. It's like, maybe you'll hear someone else on this show and be like, Oh, I didn't know that was a way to get into the industry. And like, now you found your way to be a part of this thing that you love. Yeah. There's this weird perception out there, which I do think is, thankfully starting to change but there was this weird perception where it's literally either you are a rich rock star riding around in private jets or you're a failure and like <laughs> no middle ground no there's <laughs> nothing else nothing else nothing else counts um which i think uh i think people have started to realize that it's never been that way and it certainly it certainly isn't that way now and the the music industry and the record industry they are populated by people who love music enough to make it their their life uh who are not rock stars um there's a whole industry and just because you're not uh some virtuoso or didn't write a hit song or you're just not in that situation doesn't mean that doesn't mean that there's not a place for you uh, in music. There are so many jobs. It's kind of like people thinking that uh, being a Navy SEAL is or a fighter pilot are the only two jobs in the Navy or something. <laughs> like, it's just not the case. Um, right. And I, I do think that, um, you know, most people I know in music, they, at some point they played, you know, but not necessarily. Some of them are just music fans, but they're that level of music fan that they wanted to uh, they wanted to make it their everything, basically. And um, 
And I think that it's important for people to understand that that is out there because you don't have to go into a field you don't want to go into. If you just do a little bit of research about the field that you do want to go into, the thing is maybe your dream scenario is unattainable. Like, you know, if your dream scenario is you want to be in the next Metallica or something, or you want to be the best guitar player on earth or something like that, that might be tougher. But if you, uh, you know, if you want to work at a label, if, um, you want to be a producer, if you want to be just a, you know, a session musician, if you just want to make a living, uh, playing music, if you just want to be a touring professional, it's not really, I'm saying if you just want to be, but if there's, I could go down a list and basically spend the next five hours talking about what different jobs are in the music industry that do not involve being one of five people on stage in some multimillionaire band. Like there's a whole industry behind it. And, uh, and there's actually a shortage of people in it right now. So that was a perfect time to, to get in. Yeah. It's funny as I find myself back at a screen printing job, uh, now mixing the inks and doing all that kind of stuff is the job. It's like literally the one part of it when I worked at the same job, like oh, 15 years ago that I didn't know. So it's a new challenge, but it's funny to see how like something I was talking about, our guy in receiving that was the job, one of the jobs I used to do there. And I was like, man, you know, something a friend of mine now is like the merchandising director or whatever the thing is uh, right now on tour. And something I've been seeing a lot of touring bands do, which I was like, holy shit, this is like so fucking smart. And how, how did we never think of this, especially when we had to do inventory on all these garments? put a fucking photo outside the box of what it is. Um, so then that way, you know exactly what's in the box and what they look like. Um, and I was like, I've been seeing touring bands do that recently. And I was like, son of a bitch. That's such a smart idea. Um, <laughs> it's a really, and it's, idea. it's just, it's so dumb. And like, we were talking about it today and he was like, shit, maybe we should. And then like our like owner was there and he was like, that's, actually a pretty good idea. Maybe we should do that, especially on the, some of the stuff that we don't ever use, but they're technically owned by another, like a company that we used to make merch for. Maybe we should do the same thing. So when we have to do the inventory every single year, we can just kind of be smarter about it instead of having to pull everything out. It's like, Oh, what's that? Oh yeah. That's the, the racer backs and this brand. Da, 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 da. And it was just funny that it's like an experience I had from someone who's in the touring capacity that deals with merch. I was just like, that's a great idea. I think we can apply that somewhere else in the same industry. Um, but it's, I don't know. It's just interesting to, to, as I get older, I find that things that I do from the music side of like the podcast or any of the things that I see uh, from friends when I go see them on tour, how I'm able to apply those things to other facets of my life. And I'm just like, it's so weird. Like, what would the transition be if I decided to like either piss off my wife and be like, I'm going on the road now. I know enough people. I'm just going to go sling merch for a band and do that. Or even probably could do tour managing. I'm just not, my wife would actually be a really good tour manager. A lot of our friends have said that cause she's just very direct and to the point and wouldn't like, if someone were to try to like finagle some shit out of her, they'd be like, no, the fucking contract says this and this is what you're paying us to give it to me now. <laughs> um, and I mean, essentially, that's almost what she does at her job. So, I mean, that's why she's probably really good at it. But it's just funny because it's like I think about it all the time, but I'm just like, oh, just the 
especially during the pandemic. Um, it's just like seeing so many people's careers essentially wiped out and the uncertainty. It just was like, man, that's scary. And I think it happens to everyone's career. Like, you know, the automotive industry, obviously living here in Michigan, it happened to them. Um, you know, different things. I think the only thing that's essentially quote unquote recession proof or pandemic proof, as I learned was essentially what my wife does working in the pharmaceutical world where it's like pandemic means money because you need sterile injectables and stuff like that and vaccines and they need to go worldwide. So that's one of the few things where when something like that happens, it's, it's almost like you can't lose your job in that career field. Yeah. Well, okay. That is one thing that I think, um, anyone getting into music needs to learn to be comfortable with, which is some degree of uncertainty. Now I do agree that like there's more uncertainty in, in the real world than I guess people maybe used to believe. And definitely I think the pandemic kind of, uh, kind of illuminated just how, how uncertain everything is and how our entire world is, a house of cards. But <laughs> that said, um, I think music is just a, a step more uncertain than almost anything, because at the end of the day, you are dealing with, uh, you are dealing with art and, and at the and all of the commerce happens because of the public's taste in that art. Um, it's not a necessity the way that medicine is. It's just not. And, uh, and things, yeah, the pandemic happened and wiped out people's jobs, but a band's, um, the interest in a band could also just disappear one day and wipe out a bunch of people's jobs. So the lead singer of a band could, uh, you know, hire a hitman or something. And then suddenly you no longer have a band like there's all kinds of fucked up shit that can happen that just overnight fucks up your entire career. And uh, not to mention how disorganized a lot of the music industry is, how chaotic it is, how last minute things happen, like wow. how, how much catastrophizing there is. Like you have to really be able to handle a lot of chaos and um, be chill about it. But it's still definitely an actual career path uh, if you want it and get good at something in it. There's there's a couple of things, and slowly just got to start wrapping up. Uh, so I got to get ready to start making dinner for the wife as she's about to come home. Um, first of all, this episode is going to go right after the episode I just recorded with Ken, uh, formerly of Unearth, now of Esley Dying. <laughs> Speaking of your comments. Um, but I mean, it's funny because like that's that one was, man's one man's uh, disfortune. Yeah, there's a uh, there's something in what you just said that actually is that I found really intriguing, and I found myself sort of in in trouble for asking the question. But it's like you know, you were talking about. I mean, making the comment about Tim. Um, is you know, that, I had asked. Go ahead. Is that who I was talking about? I mean, I don't really know know many other people who like lost tentatively could have lost their careers because of someone trying to hire a hitman, but uh, <laughs> outside it's him, but you know, but it is something that like when, so that was kind of serendipitously, that was something when I had 
was on that other show discography discussion the first time i was on it they asked me to pick a band and i said as like dying because i think their career was really interesting uh where they started and where they've gone uh, and just progressing as players and production on their records and so forth and was the thing with as we were talking about all of it you know i kind of had made mention of you know it's I feel like the band should be allowed to come back because I mean, the thing we're all forgetting is that there's other people involved in it outside of Tim and that they have careers and they've all earned the the right to be able to play that music that they help write or whatever. And, you know, something I, I had said on, on this show when I had blue from Philip H and Semmel and the illegals and a million other bands that he's in with, with Phil what, around the time of that dime bash thing. And I had asked uh, blue, I was like, what is it like kind of walk me through what it's like to, to possibly have your whole career taken away from you. And you had nothing to do with the reason that now it may be in jeopardy. And just this, this idea of proximity to people Um, because from a human perspective, I just find that infinitely fascinating. Like you did nothing wrong. You had no hand in anything other than just being like, I'm in this band or bands with this person. And now because of something they did outside of me, potentially my whole livelihood and career is just gone. And I can't really think of, I mean, I probably could if I thought about it a little bit more, but I can't really think of instances where like things like that happen to people so quickly. Um, and it just, it, it's fascinating to me to kind of see that happening. And I just find it interesting to, to see how people deal with it. Um, so it is something that doing this show, I, I, I Again, a kind of behind the scenes thing I, I think is is fun to learn how people deal with real life issues in real time as much as they can and, and articulate the process that they went through to navigate it. Um, but it has also found myself on the end of very a frantic phone call from a publicist going, what happened? <laughs> Please take this person's name off of this. And you having to kind of laugh and be like, I'm sorry that the person named the whole band after their, literally their full legal name. <laughs> I don't know what you want me to do <laughs> about that a day and a half later, but okay, I guess I will do that. Yeah. Uh, people, people say dumb shit sometimes, but it, that, that is the thing though, even before, like before the age of, people losing their entire careers over a comment or something like that. There was still the issue of like a band works really, really hard and it all gets tanked because someone can't control their drinking or something, or someone is just such a monster fucking asshole that no one wants to work with them anymore. Like that has been around forever. And yeah. so being in a band there there's always been a minefield where you are basically at the you're basically your fortune is dependent on the four other people in your band acting right um and you better pray that if you have band members that don't act right that you make enough money for everybody to where they'll ignore it because that's the other history of the music industry is when a band makes enough money for enough people, bad behavior gets, uh, gets ignored, um, within, within certain limits, you know, the more illegal it is, the less it can be ignored. But 
uh, the less money a band makes for people, the lower the threshold is for bad behavior. And, um, and I guess one positive thing about this day and age is even though you can have your career ended by, uh, somebody else in your band doing something in some cases, that's not even that big of a deal. Um, in some cases it is a very big deal. The, the good side of it is that overall people in the music industry are much better behaved now than they were before. Like there's far less tyrannical asshole motherfuckers. Like people are far less abusive to each other. Um, there's, there is substance abuse, but it's less, it's less than before, far less like, like shit, like, injecting heroin um is not glamorized the way it used to be uh there's far more sober tours than there were before like there's overall the culture of rock and metal um behind the scenes has gotten way way healthier and way more positive and there's just there's less tolerance for bad stuff and i do think it is back to what i said before there's less money so there's less tolerance for bullshit. Um, more money equals more tolerance for bullshit because people will look the other way. You know, uh, money kind of silences things. But uh, the as chaotic as it is and as many fucked up people as there still are in it, it has gotten a lot better um, just because people will not put up with no assholes the way they used to or they will not put up with junkies the way that they used to. They just, they just won't, it's not worth it. It's there. There's no reason to, cause there's plenty of other people to work with who aren't going to abuse you or aren't going to, you know, aren't, aren't going to be fucked up all day, every day. So like it, I think there's pros and cons in every era and any type of situation, but honestly, me personally, I think the music industry is a lot better than it used to be. From what little bit I've been in it, I feel like, you know, it's funny because like some people, you know, I take my wife almost to every show when I meet the people that I've had on the show, you know, I usually bring her with her with us. And it's like, you know, Patrick from Ice Nine is like one of her favorite people. Um, she looks forward to when we go to see him that we get to hang out with him. Um, and it's, you know, most of the time when we're hanging out you know backstage or watching other bands and so forth it's like everyone's just chill and it's like it's funny because i think like my favorite was when i had uh went to go interview josh todd from buck cherry we're on the back of his bus or back of their bus and someone's like what was the bus like i was like it feels like a cramped studio apartment like you're just stepping over everyone's shit you feel very like like you're in their way because it is it's their like living space for the next little bit. And when you take a part of it away, so someone can do something for press, it just feels like you're a hindrance to their day to day. And everyone's like, and they're like, wasn't it fun? I go, yeah, sometimes like, you know, when I, when I'm there for a different reason, like other friends, when we're able to hang out and, you know, party and drink and whatever, like that's fun. But it's also, again, like, you're impeding like if you can kind of tell when people are starting to get tired, like you feel kind of bad because you're like, well, shit, all they have is a little pocket door that's in a, cloth over their bunk to get away from us like th- there's really nowhere to go so it's like no it's not 
as glamorous as you think it is. A lot of times, I guess if you're more of an empathetic person, you just feel bad that you are taking up space in a very cramped environment between crew and, and road people and all that stuff. Yeah. I, I can like, tell you, I can tell you from artist perspective that it there man on buses, like, yeah, every time someone comes on, it's like suddenly you have a little bit less space. And then there's a lot of, the thing is that what, people who don't do it don't understand and it's not their job to understand this, but so I don't judge them for not understanding, but they don't understand to them. Going to a show is like a special occasion. Um, even if they go to shows a lot, it's a special occasion. Like they're going to go see, like I'm really excited to go see this Chris Nolan movie that's coming out. So I bought tickets to it already. Special mm-hmm. occasion. Um, it's kind of, you know, People go to shows because it is a special thing. Getting to go hang out with a band that they love, that is does not happen for most people every single day. So it's a special thing. However, for the band, like it's every day. <laughs> it's every day. These are the people that they have to spend their entire lives with. And uh, you know, after a show, you're fucking tired. Like, who knows how many weeks you've been at it? Like you might be sick. You might've just gotten sick. You sometimes you're in a good mood and want to hang out with people, but lots of times you're just exhausted and you've just played a fucking show. It's super loud. It's like your adrenaline is spiked through the roof. Uh, You got to come down and just having a bunch of strangers around, like helping themselves to everything. It can be, it can be basically I, I, I have like this hourglass in my head on like those types of interactions where the moment the social interaction starts, the hourglass is going <laughs> like, I have like uh, I have like, I have this social time. I get, it's not, it happens to me in restaurants too. And like, mm. it's probably social anxiety. It's just this like hourglass where the social anxiety timer has begun. And uh, as soon as it expires, I'm like, I need out. But on a tour bus, there is no out. So you just kind of have to, you got to figure it out. But it's not, it's not what people think it is. Uh, People think that it's like private jets and four seasons. And there are some bands who travel like that. And that's awesome. But that is very, that's very, very, very few bands. Even, even among successful bands, like that is like, total anomaly exception the most of the successful bands just travel on a bus in a cramped ass bus that smells like a locker room and uh don't have anywhere to go other than like some disgusting Mm -hmm. venue for about six weeks straight so you gotta really love it basically kind of the last question for you what is you know being so far into the nail the mix stuff and and expanding what you guys keep doing over there what is like your like bucket list or like white whale artist or song or whatever that you haven't gotten yet that you're that you really want to get on the show eventually uh it would be great to get hans zimmer on Mm. um muse would be sick uh, I just saw them for the first time when we were out West on a trip and totally lived up to, I texted doc when I was done. Cause I know he's doc Coyle Cause I know he's a big like muse fan. I was like, dude, Matt's tones fucking blew me away. 
like oh, yeah. live. It's like one of the greatest bands, like greatest rock bands in history. And I think a lot of people who don't, who haven't seen them live might not understand until they go see them live. And then it's like, holy shit, this band is, yeah. uh, this band is like historic. They're so good. awesome. Yeah. So, so awesome. I'd love to have them on Slipknot, like Corn, Metallica. Um, you know, I think the bucket list is uh, who you would expect, but also it would be really cool to have people like Mr. Bungle or Igor on. Um, so, but, you know, any lining up any one of those bands is pretty monumental to me. But for me, it's less about individual bands. Um, and it's more about uh, kind of continuing what we started, which is, and making sure like for me, like the, we're always going to have a band on and sometimes it's going to be a really big band. Sometimes it's going to be an up and comer. Sometimes it's, we're going to pick the wrong band that nobody cares mm. about. But like, for me, the bigger picture is like that we are always staying ahead of the curve and showing people what actually makes a difference for, um, you know, for, making the best sounding heavier records possible and that we never, you know, the fear is we never want to get dated and mm. rest on our laurels because production is continually evolving. And, uh, you know, so we're always fighting the fight to stay ahead of that and to make sure that what we're offering is, you know, always current and always practical and will always help people actually get better in real life i think it's uh very commendable what you guys do uh i mean the other thing you know kind of coming full circle toward the end here uh the other comment i was going to make when going through your social media that i think kind of speaks to just so much of i mean a doing a podcast b doing what you guys do doing anything really in the in the capacity of the music industry you know you posted about working with zach wilde Yep. Um, that was cool. And, you know, you were talking about just all the all that went behind the scenes, not even just like doing the thing, but just literally everything it took to make that happen and how long of a process it had been to get it to happen. And it's crazy because, like, I think that showcases so much of why people have sustained sustainability in this is because they just want it, you know, kind of going back to what we were saying earlier about, you know, you know, having intent like an actual intention with what you're doing. And I mean, even with this show, like I remember it took almost four years to get uh, from the initial email to um, why am I blanking on his name now? The singer from uh, misery signals, uh, Jesse um, to get him on. And it was, well, we're going to finish this tour. Then, Hey dude, actually we're going to, we're writing, we're going to be making a new record. Well, we got to wait for this to be done. Hey, we got to wait for this to be done. Hey, we got to, and just kept getting put on the back burner. And it's like, when it finally happened, it was awesome because it's like, we were able to kind of, and we were in communication throughout that, that whole four year tenure. But it's this thing where it's like, someone might hear it and just be like, Oh, I'm surprised you didn't talk about this or, you know, whatever. And it just may be another episode to them, but it's like that took four years and probably hundreds of emails and like whatever, just to, to facilitate and get it to happen. So when it actually happens, it's almost like a fucking miracle that like it, it anything happened because movies, whatever, it's like the amount of things that could go wrong to prevent the thing from happening 
are just astronomical, you know, and just dealing with it and not getting discouraged or not wanting to quit or whatever. And to me, like, I just, that one post just showcased so much of like, this is almost put it to anything. And you just have no idea like what it takes to, to do this thing and put it out consistently to where it's the product you're expecting and that you love. And to me, like I saw that and I, I just identified with that post so much. Cause I was like, Jesus Christ, the amount of all of it that I have to deal with to, to put out a thing and then thinking, and you know, piggybacking off of the Nickelback thing where I was like, and then you get some asshole, like, you know, I got the other day who was just like, Jesus Christ, dude, stop talking in the intro. Just get to the fucking interview. And I was, and I just commented back. I was like, sorry, I made you fast forward through something that you decided to click on. And that cost you absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it's it, it's it's an interesting thing man because um on the on the one hand you want people it's like you want people to like appreciate what goes into something but then at the same time it doesn't really matter right because all that matters is do they like the thing you did so if the zach wild course sucked that's all that would have mattered in the end like the years it took to get there, like the dodging and weaving, like all of it, uh, you know, none of that would matter if the course sucked and if people bought it and felt like they were ripped off or something, or like, it just wasn't that good. That makes all of it futile, I guess, or like a waste, just a waste. And so I think at the end of the day, like knowing that, it does take that gargantuan effort to make anything happen. Um, It's that much more imperative that the thing that you do is really good because, (laughs) because like, otherwise, why would you put yourself through that? Cause yeah, making anything happen. I feel like uh, whether it's a podcast episode or a course or an album or a tour, like any of these things that did not exist prior to you making it happen. It is a small miracle. Um, and like, it's almost never easy. Like it's almost never, it's almost never just like, I want this to happen. And then it happens. Like there's, there's a bunch of curveballs that you're going to have to deal with. But also I think that there, that those curveballs are a great thing. Um, cause I really do think that those curveballs are what, makes the difference and whenever those happen like i always ask myself is this something that somebody else would quit over and that's what keeps me from not quitting basically i yeah i mean i i kind of had to rediscover my why very recently uh and found it again thankfully and I'm kind Good. of looking forward to pushing on uh, into the to, to episode 500 and trying to see how far this, this journey will go. But um want to thank you for taking the time um, to chat today so quickly, too, after the initial email back and forth between Tim and myself and presumably you. Um, where can everyone find you or anything you would like to, to plug online? Well, if you want to find the Jens Bogren and Ishan course, go to nailthemix.com slash Yen's course and that's j-e-n-s course so yeah nail the mix.com slash yen's course um you know or just go to nail the mix.com or urm.academy and I mean, you can find me on instagram at a levy urm audio and uh 
I'm sure that my name is going to be spelled properly in the description of this episode. So at ALVURM Audio. <laughs> no, I do my due diligence <laughs> with all that stuff. I so. know. Um, I'm just you, you kind of have to, although I always joke cause I'm like at the end in, you know, where it's like, Oh, make sure to follow and do all that stuff. And I'm like, it literally is in the fucking description below. Like, is, is someone literally going to like write this down real quick as I'm saying it at the end, but it's the thing that we do, uh, when you wrap up an episode, cause it's, it's the, the whole thing. So, and then I always think to myself, I'm like, does anyone actually follow the links and the show show notes as well? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, can it hurt? No, I mean, I do it because it's the thing we do to obviously promote the various ancillary avenues for someone to follow and keep up with the person. But uh, just things I think of, same thing when people are like, oh, you got to put hashtags on your stuff. And I'm like, does anyone like, have you literally ever followed a hashtag? And someone's like, no. And I go, then why do we do it? <laughs> why do we say you have to? Because like, I don't click on them and follow different pages because of it. Like, it's not how not how I social media. So I don't really know that anyone does, but it's a thing I always do on the episode. So I guess I'm just playing along and following the rules of the game. Well, you can look at the analytics too. And uh, that's, that's how I like, I try to not make these decisions based on what I do. Cause I realize that I'm not like the way I do <laughs> things is not the way that a lot of people do things. So I just look at data and mm. I have noticed that like hashtags make a difference. So I, I never click on them, but they make a difference. Oh, so somebody do. does the algorithm yeah well enjoy the rest of your day and uh hopefully you. see you around when uh hopefully i'll have to hit up sean because i know we're gonna go to atlanta soonish sometime in the next couple months uh maybe death will have a show or something maybe we gotta finish an album <laughs> first no don't do that just no. just play out just play out yeah just just, just be like a local band. Just yeah, be like just, a local band just and just play tour. songs. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, it worked for that. Uh, what was that band? Uh, Threaten. That worked for them. Yeah, just just go on tour. It doesn't matter where. Just go. <laughs> All right. Enjoy the rest of your day. All right, man. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Yeah. So that was my conversation with Aeol, and I just want to make a comment real quick uh, about something I really enjoyed about this conversation was the fact that there are times where I posed questions or I guess sort of ideas on maybe would nail the mix, would URM ever go away from you know metal and hard rock and kind of start dipping into other subgenres or genres as a whole. And something that I really enjoyed about it, and I can already I already feel like I'm going to get negative comments, or and I don't want to say negative, I'm going to get comments on it is that, to me, when I think of something that's successful, sometimes it's just in my nature to want to go, can you apply it to something else with the same level of expertise that already exists in this thing that's very niche and expand it and kind of maybe offer, especially in a learning capacity, offer something to help others in another area learn how to be successful in something that maybe they aren't don't have the resources or tools like you have currently with you know what URM and Nailed and Mix is doing. And I do gotta say, I love that AL made the comment about like I don't have the resources or I guess it's not even resources, but just I guess the the desire maybe to expand into another genre or other genres as a whole that he's not as versed in as he is with what he does. And part of me thinks that like that's so it was so profound kind of to hear that. And I've really been thinking about it because at first when I heard that and I thought about it, cause it's like, to me, when I see what they're doing, I'm like, Oh, you, you have so much room to do this in other lanes and, you know, bring this thing that has clearly been proven to be successful 
to other avenues and, and expand it and just continue to grow the product. And I really enjoyed the fact that he was honest in that he didn't really want to. And more importantly, understands that in order to do that, he already knows how much work has to go into what he's doing currently, that there's just not really a way to do that for him with right now to, to expand in that capacity. And I feel like, you know, I spend a lot of time in, in my jobs working with people who, you know, working in corporations and so forth, where it's like you're, you're just being micromanaged and so many things are coming down from the, the top down. And it's interesting because I feel like there's so many jobs I've worked where they try to do so many things versus what are we good at and how do we just make sure that we consistently deliver the best product within this thing that we know how to do versus being really good at this and doing a ton of other shit that we're mediocre at best at. And I feel like it is kind of a detriment to a lot of us because I think we we just exist in this society and I, and I'm, and I'm honestly sitting here right now trying to figure out when did it really start? Like, can I pinpoint it from a, a personal perspective of when as a culture, when as people, did we not learn to be singularly good at something and just hone our craft, but have to be good at a million other things. You know, the, the joke, you know, Jack of all trades, master of none really comes to mind. And I'd almost be interested to see where did that phrase come? Because I feel like so many people, live in this world and this idea that we have to be good at so many things. And I'll even take it a step further into something that I have talked about on the show quite a bit, which is actually one of the things I have found to be very empowering is knowing my limitations and understanding that I can't possibly know everything. And instead of trying to incorporate myself into things where I just have no understanding, no, uh, no knowledge of or whatever, just to be involved in and, and to, to be accepted it's, it's not worth it. I'd, I'd much rather just be like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know this thing. I don't know. Please tell me. Please teach me. And it's a thing where I, I see so much of our society actually kind of going the opposite route where it's like you'll watch conversations with people and you'll hear them be like, oh, have you heard about blah, blah, blah. And everyone will be like, uh, I've heard of it or yeah, you know, a little bit or whatever. And now I'm just kind of getting to the point where I'm like, no, I, I don't know about that. No, I haven't seen that. Uh, no, I have no interest in this. You know, like a big one for a while, Game of Thrones. Oh man, have you been watching? No, I don't. Well, did you watch it? No, I didn't. <laughs> and it's a thing where sometimes I feel like it also saves us, me, uh, the time of having to sit through a conversation that you really have no interest in either. Um, but the point of it really is, though, is I just kind of loved being challenged. Um, you know, I, I love kind of having people who understand who they are and what they do best. And, and that's what makes them so fucking successful. And it is something that I, even in the moment when I asked certain questions, I was like, Oh, I think this is an interesting question. And then when AO made the comment back to me about these things, like, no, this is why I do this and so on and so forth, that it became this thing where I was like, huh, I actually really admire and respect that. Like you know that, like, I don't know. I don't know how to put it any other way than just that. But it, it was something that has stuck with me since the conversation uh, and something I've, I've, again, tried applying to my own life of just knowing what you do, being fine with what you do, and putting out the best version of what you know how to do out there. So, 
I don't know. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I hope uh, all of you that were potentially interested in this, I hope you do go check out the How It's Done thing. Um, like I said, I only got like a little bit of the videos, uh, which a little bit was about three hours worth of videos. Uh, and there is just so much more to this this program uh, than what I even had. And the amount of detail I saw just in the little bit I got to see you know, if you're someone that's into producing and into wanting to make music like this and produce music like this or record music like this, I don't see how it wouldn't be beneficial to you. And even if you're remotely interested in producing as a whole, go check out Nail the Mix stuff. I mean, the the breadth of what they have available from everything from like progressive metal to, you know, even with this, like, you know, death metal and, and symphonic metal and all the way to Nickelback and all these other bands, like, it's really interesting to be able to kind of start breaking down parts and, and choices that were made from a production standpoint. Um, I can say from having a lot of friends who record and are in bands to hear the difference between all of the ways the song could go from, you know, the demo to pre-pro to the beginning phases of mixing and mastering. It is just fucking wild to see how a song can take shape and the different iterations it could go and how, differences in mixes and you know things you're adding completely change the feel and vibe of a song and i know that may sound so stupid to some people like yeah obviously duh but i can think of some some of my friends bands a song started off one way and where it ended up with are like two entirely different songs and it is insanely fascinating to just see how you can manipulate a song over the course of its lifespan of what you started with the idea to where it ended up as a final uh, a final song. All that said, I'm going to start wrapping up this episode. Uh, if you like keep up with AO Levy, you can find him on Facebook at The Real AO Levy and Instagram at AO Levy URM Audio. And if you would like to keep up with URM, you can find them on Instagram at URM Academy. Uh, there was a Twitter page. Uh, doesn't look like it's been active since two, 2017. Uh, there was also a Nail the Mix uh, Twitter that also hadn't been active since 2017. Uh, but if you'd like to keep up with all things Nail the Mix, honestly, just go to nailthemix.com. Uh, if you're interested in becoming a, a student, uh, learning uh, from all these, these masters of their crafts and so forth... And if you would like to keep up with Dath, you can find them at Dath Official on Instagram. Um, yeah, not really much else to plug. Uh, I want to thank our podcast sponsors, Rockabilia. Don't forget to use our code BREW10 at checkout. Uh, take 10% off your total purchase order. As well as the wonderful folks over at Starving Artist Brewery. I uh, was planning on going to check them out this past weekend, but uh, some other things popped up. So I need to get out there soon, go try some delicious beer. And honestly, as as more of the world we live in uh, keeps being just a, a fucking hate fest of so many things, uh, social media and all that just being toxic, I am really, really reminded every time I talk about them and their slogan, uh, Judge Beer Not People, about how we really need to kind of take that into consideration with a lot of other facets of our lives. And uh, lastly, for the podcast, you can find us on Brew Speak Pod on all your social media platforms. And uh, if you'd like to reach out to me, you can email me, brutallyspeaking at gmail.com. And for the podcast, I am John. I'll talk to you all next time. Have a wonderful week.